recognizing that like no matter how good you are, even if that's true, you're certainly not when you're doing everything and you're spending three minutes on something and they can spend eight hours on it, right? There's a level of self-awareness that you get after a while to realize that, yeah, that's not perfect, but it's close enough. And it's better than I could have done in the time I could have allocated to it. So it's a win. This can't be it. There has to be more. Wait, am I crazy? No. If you're yearning for more and working hard to make your dreams a reality, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Dreamcatchers. It's the only show committed to helping you self-actualize and then transcend, leaving you with the legacy you've always desired. Listen in on conversations with successful philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and founders every week as we connect with them for inspiration, education, and direction. Your host, Jerome Myers, is here to help you exit the matrix and transform into a leader of your own revolution. The question is, do you believe your dreams should be real? Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome, and we're going international today, ladies and gentlemen. I found Randy Woods on one of the many podcasts that I listened to. I reached out and said, man, I'd I'd love to bring you in on the show. Your experience, I think, just captures all the exits that us as founders go through. And he was kind enough to allocate some time to hang out with me today. So, Randy, thank you so much for coming in and hanging out with us on the Dreamcatchers podcast. No, not at all. It's very exciting. Man. So let's just dive in. You, you had an exit and uh, I don't know how many figures, I don't know if you can disclose the number, but it seems to be a big one, right? Yeah. Well, I can give you a sense of the size of the company. When we exited, we were a services-based company and we had about 120 people operating Ooh. in four countries. So it gives you a sense of the size of the company. It wasn't just me. I had a business partner from day one, my old university housemate. And, and we also had a great cast of, of team members who had equity in the company too by the time we exited. So there was a a cast of dozens that actually made this happen. It's not like a one-man journey. Yeah, I think partnership actually helps you go the distance, but I see a lot of them fall apart early on. And so absolutely, how long did the journey take from inception to getting wow. to the place where you guys got the check, as I call it? Yeah, okay, I'll tell you the, the quick story of the company then. So way back in 1995, Shannon, Ryan, and I decided to start an internet-based company not really knowing what the internet was. Nobody else did either. So that was the advantage. I don't know. Al Gore uh, says he invented it. So I Yeah, mean, we actually yeah. thought that, that information superhighway might be the way to go. That was one of our, our twigs. So it, literally, we, we both had great jobs for 25, 26-year-olds, but thought we wanted to see our life go in a slightly different direction. We were at the gym. We thought we'd just start a company. You know, maybe Al Gore's right. Pursue this thing. And so he was a Soviet studies major. I was an English poli-sci major. So we were perfectly qualified to start a technology company, right? Absolutely, Absolutely had all yeah. the skills. But yeah, we just quit our jobs and rolled the dice. And I think we had like a couple thousand bucks and, you know, laptops of dubious provenance that we were able to start the company with. And we kind of went from there. There's an advantage to starting a company when you're young and have very few monthly obligations. Yeah. And so in 1995, you start. Mm-hmm. You ex- in 2017. So 23 odd years, roughly with lots of side adventures along the way. So it was, a, it was a two-decade journey for us to go through this. And there were certainly opportunities to have sold the company before that point. We declined to do so. And in retrospect, those were probably poor decisions. So when the window opened, we decided it was time to take advantage of the opportunity in 2017. Okay, so that gives us a, a journey line, right? A timeline for when you guys made that. So let's go back to 25, 24, 26-year-old yeah. Randy. You, you got a job. 
and you're like, I want to do something else. I want to be in control of my own destiny. You said you quit, but was there any more thought to it other than I'm at the gym and I want to start a company with my buddy from college? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of gloss over this. Really what happened is we got a couple of, we set up an entity. We got a couple of very small contracts that sort of proved that there actually was a market there. And I mean, I'm talking contracts in like $3,000, $4,000 range. No one knew what the web was at that point. Our whole job was education, right? It's hard to believe this, but that's where we were at. And so we had a little sense there was something here. And I was also pretty certain that if it didn't work out, I could apply my skills elsewhere and get back in the employment game. So I didn't feel like there was that much risk uh, for us to leap into this. It was a difficult transition though. Um, I, I had a fantastic job and worked with great people. And so leaving that, it was harder for, it's harder for me to leave because of the people that I've been working with than it was for the decision from like a safety or security standpoint. So how did the work that you did as an employee prepare you to become a founder? Uh, that's a really interesting question. The it was a very small company that I was working with. I was actually freelancing for multiple firms, but the one that was sort of my primary employer was run by a guy named Bill Armstrong. And he gave me one very specific model of an entrepreneur, right? So he showed me one way of building a company through like hustle and integrity. Bill had no former training. He was making up as he went along. That's very much what we had to do. So I think that was a big piece of the modeling that I took into starting nonlinear when we did so. Interestingly, when I went in to resign, he tried to talk me into not resigning. And then he said, okay, well, I can't do that. Can I invest in your company? So he immediately turned around and said, like, here's a check if you want it. And I was like, we wouldn't know what to do with this. We won't accept it. But that, you know what? That taught me a lot about how to uh, handle team members in the future who are leaving to start their own gig. Because we did invest in a number of startups that our own team members left to get involved in. So it's not a bad way to, to manage an exit. Those people are still friends, right? That's a good way to stay in the game. Wow. And it probably opens doors and gets introductions yeah. or referrals and maybe even they send you employees as a result of it because of the way you handle it. Because that story travels, right? That's one of yeah, those right. experiences you don't ever forget because the guy could or the gal could say, get out and absolutely. leave everything behind. Walk you to the door, right? Like, absolutely, right? And that's, especially when it's somebody who's leaving, they're not going to a competitor. They're going to start their own company, right? Like in that case, it's like, all oh, right, like I'm sad you're leaving, but you know, go for it, kid. Awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he probably saw a little bit of you in him or him in you based on the way he responded to that. I can't imagine when I walked out of somebody saying, hey, here's a contract or here's money for you to make it through like that. That wasn't my experience. It's just like, okay, see you later, buddy. Right. So he's a fairly small you, company too, right? So it's a bit of a different thing when you're, I think yeah. you had 50 people in the company. So very personal relationship with everybody involved. So it's not like I was working for big corporate America. It was, you know. Energy Pathways Incorporated. Yeah. Okay. So you, you walk out and you, you got some runway. You got a few contracts. You got a proof of concept. I, I didn't do it that way. I just burnt the bridges and I just, I went out, no customers, no leads, no contracts. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to figure this thing out, right? That's not the way to do it. And so part of, we put together this readiness assessment for people who are thinking about leaving so that they don't do what I did. They do more of what you did, which is you know, a soft landing, right? It's not enough to keep all the lights on, but you got some idea that somebody's going to buy it. And if you perform on what you got, you might get more work. You might refer you like there's some pathway. Yeah. And you know, the, it was a soft place to land too, because the internet was just starting. All boats were rising. There was lots of room to make mistakes and it would still be the smartest person in the room. Nobody really knew what the thing was. So like, it was a great place to start a, a company without having 
you know, a lot of capital or, you know, a lot of deep connections in the marketplace because nobody had a lot of deep connections. And we started in Ottawa, Canada, which is like the worst place ever if you want to raise capital. So we didn't even think of that as an idea, right? We just bootstrapped this thing day one and we made it work. Okay. And so now you're chief everything officer or you and your partner are splitting duties in some way, shape or form. What was the actual problem that you were solving for the clients? Was it building website? Like, what were you doing? Yeah. Like over 23 years, the problem shifted, right? Like the specific problem, but the general sense, and I'm doing this retroactively. I won't say that we had this vision at the beginning, but it was, it was clear to everybody that the internet was going to be like an inflection point in the economy. It was changing a bunch of things. And there were going to be winners and there were going to be losers. And there was some cases that was like an existential threat. If you were a, a physical bookseller and Amazon shows up, you know, that's a, that's a big deal. So our, our, our task as we saw, as we framed it, was to help our clients figure out how to navigate this in a way that was beneficial to their company. What that means is, initially, we were hand-coding HTML pages because everybody else was a notepad, right? That's what you did. Oh. And then flash forward 23 years, we've got a very large group of developers deploying Sitecore, which is one of the big content management systems. And we had some strategy folks, we had some marketing folks. So, right, like what we did changed, but the mission was always the same. It's like, this is a really important historical change in the economy. How can we help you be a better business because of it? And so I mean, it sounds to me you were getting businesses online. Yeah, initially, literally that's what it was. It was our very first large contract was the National Gallery of Canada, which sounds unusual. Even now I'm kind of shocked they hired us because we were pretty wet behind the ears, but somehow we navigated that process. And the great thing about that is they have assets, right? They've got content and they were well-recognized as a brand. So for us, having them as a, as a sort of flagship client opened a lot of doors for us and, and kind of got the ball rolling early on. Yeah, that's, and I assume they wanted to talk to some of the clients that maybe you started with before. And so the small contracts turned into a big contract. The yeah, thing that I, that was a little I sketchy, but we pulled it off. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I still haven't been able to figure out is like, how'd you figure out there was a need? Like you were in the gym and you had a hunch? Like, how do you translate that, that hunch? Oh, we, we did, we did years of deep systematic market research before we did this thing. Trump, no. We just, we just saw something big was happening, threw ourselves into it and assumed we'd figure out a way to survive. That's really like the honest truth. We did like, we talked to some people. We had a sense that the, the only people building websites at the time were people who are very deep technology folks, which is great, but they all looked like gray background, blue lines, right? Like it just wasn't, it wasn't a thing. So we thought we had something to bring to it. We knew that we anticipated that it was going to be a very important part of the economy and therefore really there'd be an opportunity. And early on there was, like you could do almost anything, right? Like if we'd been smarter, we would have been like Google or Facebook or Yahoo, but we weren't. Plus we had no capital. So there's only so much you can do, you know, on your $500 credit card. But that's what I mean. Like there was so much opportunity along the way that we were just sort of like picking our battles and where we, we thought we could win. It's interesting. You mentioned the credit card round. A lot of people try to avoid that, you know, they're taught all debt is bad and so on and so forth. But you turned away investor capital and you use unsecured credit in order to get access to capital so you could grow. There wasn't sure. much unsecured credit, to be clear. Like we had to, it was pretty thin, right? We had to drive revenue really quickly or this wasn't going to work. And, and the reason why we turned down uh, the investment from, from Bill, it was a generous offer, particularly given where we were at in the world and how old we were, uh, is that part of the motivation for us becoming entrepreneurs was about autonomy, right? And owning our, our own journey. And we knew as soon as we had somebody else's money in there as an investor, we were going to be, you know, restricted in what we were able to do. And so after a discussion, Shay and I decided that probably wasn't the right path for us. And I do think that is a, a starting point for a lot of entrepreneurs. Not, 
it's not especially inside the tech economy and the kind of companies that raise money, but like the person that opens the the local grocery store or invests in a building out a restaurant, even though there's already four thousand restaurants, right? They're they're never they're rarely doing it because they think they're gonna be a billionaire. They're doing it because they wanna drive their own life forward. And that was kind of the reason why we thought an investment wasn't well timed for us. Okay. And so you go from chief everything officer to managing the manager, right? Who was your first key hire? And I always want to know, do they work? Did they work out? <laughs> okay. So the calling that we had no money to start off with, we leaned heavily into, I'll get to the answer to the question, I promise, but we had leaned heavily into job creation programs. So in Canada at that point, there was this subsidy you could get if you took unemployed people and then employed them, right? You paid about half their salary for six months. So we had no money. So what we did is we took a bunch of unemployed people, taught them how to do HTML because it was very simple back then. And then we gave them a desk a computer and we put them to work. It looked a little bit like, you know, one of those ships in the Roman era, right? Everyone rowing together with us whipping them, but it worked. So that was, that's how we staffed the place originally was with uh, people who couldn't find jobs. And it was great. We had, they were amazing. At least one of them is still with the company at this point. So, you know, and they were former plastic workers or manufacturing or electricians who just couldn't find a place in the economy. And we, we you know, the program worked for them, worked for us. I wouldn't say they're key hires though, right? They were, they were what we could manage. The first key hire we made was a fellow named Daniel Robert. We managed to land a big contract with a group called the National Capital Commission, the details of which don't really matter, but it was by far our biggest contract. And we were about six months or maybe a year into it. And Dan came to us. He was the client and said, you guys are terrible at this. I mean, your work's great, but you have no idea how to manage anything. And we're like, yes, you're right. And he goes, you have to hire a project manager. And we said, can we hire you? And he said, yes. And so he joined us and we worked together for 20 years before we sold Dell Tech. And now he um, is a key member of the global IT team for managing security and compliance for Veltec, a 6,000 person global organization. So the answer is yes, it worked out. I know that's not the usual story. It's sometimes better to be lucky than it is to be good. But Dan Robert's joining us was absolutely critical because he's right. We weren't doing a good job. And then he was followed by a woman named uh, Allison Abraham who then was able to also drive the growth of the company and take a lot of the uh, operational execution off the hands of Shannon and I. Because again, we weren't terribly good with it. But we would, we would sometimes do these retreats or, or uh, corporate events where we do like a Myers-Briggs and you'd have everybody like line up in a line based on their color or whichever model you're using. No matter what process we used, it always ended up with Shannon and I at one end of the line and Dan and Allie at the other end of the line, right? That's basically how our, how our models worked out. So we didn't hire... We didn't try to replicate ourselves. We were very clear on our weaknesses and tried to hire people that were capable of filling them. And they did. And, and both Dan and Allie have been around. Allie, too, is still with Beltec. So it's been a long ride together. Wow. That's phenomenal. And it all, do you feel like that was coincidence or did you? It sounds like you had little ego, right? Your client is telling you you're not good at this. And you're like, we agree. Do you want to help us? Like, I you, think we have self-awareness. We have huge egos, ridiculous egos. Like nobody quits their, their great job at 25 and starts a company without like some sort of super inflated sense of self-importance, right? But I think we were very clear on what we hated doing and what we weren't good at. And so finding people that actually enjoyed doing that was a revelation. And we just got lucky with the ones that we chose. Like both Dan and Allie are super driven, really smart people, great to get along with. We still hang out like once or twice a year, family barbecue kind of stuff. So like it's their... They're at this point just, you know, super good friends. And that's, I'd love to tell you it was some gigantic talent assessment process we went through, but no, they were people that seemed to fit the mold that we liked. 
and then it worked out. So I'm not recommending this for everyone, but it worked for us. Well, what you did have that I don't think most people get is experience working with them. Right? I mean, yeah. you got to, in I don't know how many months, I think you said like six, you've spent time with the person seeing how they work. And I mean, that gives you a very good inclination on who they are and what they're going to do if they're on the team with you. Yeah, we had a sense that we could stand each other, right? And we had a sense of the capabilities of each other and recognize that they were complementary. So the next exit that we see people walk through is getting out of the day-to-day, installing some type of COO or something like that. Did you guys get out of the day-to-day at any point? Yeah, I think it really depends on what you define as day-to-day. But yes, we did abstract ourselves from from most of the key business processes along the way. We just couldn't um, grown to the size we are without doing that. I think right. somebody's brain would have broken, right? Um, having said that, we kept, there are things that we thought we were exclusively good at, and so we'd stay involved. So for example, our go-to-market operations, not really the, the sales side, more the marketing side. So like finding a path to market, understanding how to take people from never having heard from us, didn't know who we were to the point they were writing us a check. I stayed involved in managing that. I also continued to have finance report up to me because uh, paying attention to where dollars in and dollars out is something you have to do when you're a cash flow company. And so that reported to me. Uh, similarly, Shannon was still driving our biggest pitches. And uh, we both stepped in to do some consulting when it was required, when they basically wanted somebody with gray hair in the room, right? So that was kind of it. So we weren't sort of instrumental on any given project, but we would step in when there was like a, a seniority required or when we really wanted to see the the increasingly white hair uh, on our heads. Well, I think what's really important about that is you weren't responsible for delivery, right? You yeah. you didn't have a role in the delivery and you were driving new business, managing finance and engaging in relationships to further business. I, I think those are the places when you're truly owners that you need to be because they're the things that generate the biggest return on time invested. Um, that makes sense so, to me. And, and listen, I'd love to, we weren't in delivery partly because we couldn't be, right? Like once, very quickly, we had to have really people, like once it got beyond hand coding HTML and Notepad, you had people know how to program, right? And like I, I learned Your degree, bit, when, isn't your you degree know, in computer science? Come on, like no, you're so I, I was really good at, you know, English lit. If you want to discuss poetry, I was great, but it wasn't translating directly into object-oriented programming. You know, we got there. We did a lot of programming early on because we had to, but you know, very quickly being clear, if the old guys are coding, there's a real problem in the company, right? So we, we had to get out of delivery pretty quickly. And that's in some ways an advantage. It does make it harder because you have to hire people earlier in the cycle than you might if you can carry the ball yourself. On the other side, though, it meant that we had to get out of the day-to-day delivery very quickly or else we just couldn't have done the work. And so what would you say is the most important step in getting out of the day-to-day? Like, Because I know people are wrestle with that because they give up control and then something bad happens and then like they regret it and then they say, oh, I'll just do everything myself. People are like, what helped yeah. you do it? So, and we made like all the mistakes along the way. So I don't want to suggest that we had this correct at the beginning. But I think, I think recognizing that like no matter how good you are, you are better at everything than everyone, right? And even if you are, even if that's true, you're certainly not when you're doing everything and you're spending three minutes on something and they can spend eight hours on it, right? Like there's a, a level of... um self-awareness that you get after a while to realize that like, yeah, that's not perfect, but it's close enough. And it's better than I could have done in the time I could have allocated to it. So it's a win. And I think that that recognition, especially in a services company, is one that was critical and came you know, fairly early. Now, I look, 
as much as I say that, like I was still stepping into projects when I thought they were going off the rails or reviewing deliverables right until the day we sold the company if I thought they weren't great, right? So I was still inserting my nose where it didn't belong and continue to do that today at Veltech. So it's you know, maybe a constitutional hazard that comes with the business, but hiring really good people lets you trust them to do the job and eventually they do it better than you possibly could. You got to trust that process. It's almost like kids, right? If you protect the kids from all the mistakes, then they don't ever really learn anything and they don't ever pause and ask for help if you're always stepping in or because they rebel against the desire for help. And so this is, it's an interesting balance that you, you got to figure out as you're managing or navigating those relationships. So when we go to exit five, we'd label that one governance. And so did you ever have a board in place before you... So, okay, I have to do a bit of a digression here on this one. So for nonlinear, we never had a formal board. We had a board of advisors periodically. And then we also had, so I remember the entrepreneurs organization for many years, and that gave me kind of a de facto group of entrepreneurs I could run things past who held me accountable for things. So played some of that role around accountability. But we also, along the way, spun off a software company during the dot-com boom, raised a bunch of money. It blew up gloriously. It looked a lot like Google Analytics before Google Analytics showed up called Bystream. It was really fun. We went from zero to 200 people in about a year, and then from 200 down to five people in about six months. So it was a, a learning experience. Uh, and that did have a board. And that's where I had my first opportunity, I will call it, to figure out some of the challenges of board management under difficult circumstances. And so we did have board experience. And both Shan and I did that as well. So we were doing these two companies in parallel. So we had a lot of experience with the board, both in good times and bad times, in about a year and a half. That company ended up being an oil and gas company, by the way, at the end of the day, which is a very long and, and shaggy dog story I could tell usually over much beer, but it wasn't a complete failure. The, the early investors should have got their cash out. Wow. So, so I would say we didn't print on the near establish that kind of governance. It was basically Shannon and I, plus our executive team making the decision. That may have been uh, a mistake historically, but it was just kind of a, the way that things evolved. We never brought in the, the kind of board leadership that I think would have been particularly useful in the early 2000s. Got it. And so you mentioned early on that you had multiple opportunities to exit the business. And you said waiting may have been a mistake. Can we talk about why you think that is the case? Sure. I guess I should be clear. I'm very happy with the way things ended up, right? My life not right now is better than I ever expected it to be. But if I replay the tape and think about it financially, there were opportunities very early in the dot-com boom for us to have exited at ludicrous multiples, seven, eight times revenue, forward-looking for a services company. It made no sense whatsoever. Now, many of those were stock-based. And of course, the stock market went like this, so you might have ended up with zero anyways. That could have been the worst case scenario, right? You think you're a multimillionaire and then you find out you're a thousandaire. Like That could have been a really bad scenario. So we avoided that. But there's a couple that actually were legit companies. And financially, you know, if you can get in and get out in three years, that would have been okay, right? That maybe it was a, was a good thought. There's a window there. There's a window um, before the 2008 uh, debacle where um, valuations were high. There's a lot of money around. And again, we, we might have exited there and we decided not to. We thought we, we could take the company to the next level. And then the window, of course, closed after 2008. And we, we did okay through that period, actually. Like it was a pretty decent, we didn't have a whole lot of downturns. So we kind of grew fairly steadily. And then when, I guess 2016, we decided that, you know, we were approaching our 50s. The company was a really good place. The market was strong for our kinds of companies. We thought it was probably the right time to explore options. So I'm not regretting any other decisions, but we have a very real understanding that windows open and they close and they don't last forever. 
And so that's part of the motivation to pull the trigger was knowing that if you don't do it now, you're going to have to wait till the next business cycle happens. Got it. And so what was your first exposure to someone selling a business? It's interesting. I think probably the, my first awareness of it was the inbound people calling us during the dot-com boom, right? They even thought of selling the company. There were a handful of advertising agencies I'd known the founders of that had exited, not big exits, but small ones. Those are probably, I think like my first, I guess, awareness of that. And then some of the people in the entrepreneur's organization um, had exited as well. So yeah. I kind of was able to follow that as I went along. I always knew it was an option, right? I think because of the, the way that the dot-com boom evolved, there was just this idea that people were like setting up companies and selling them really quickly. So it was less one example and more a general tendency in the economy. Well, yeah. And I think it's more normal in tech for people to exit or sell or build it to sell, right? They're just trying to get a subscription and sell it to somebody else, that revenue stream. So did someone help you with the process? Like, did you have a broker? Did you have coaching? Like, how how did you go through that? Because it's tough. It's difficult. So what we did, here's the advantage of Shannon and I having early overlapping abilities is I was able to step away and run the process for a year and he's able to run the company with, with Shannon Alley, right? So I kind of got out of like operations entirely and, and ran a process for us to sell the company for eight, nine months. But we did work with a broker and they, they added value. We would not have got this deal done without them. I, in retrospect, I wish we'd, rather than just calling someone we knew, I wish we'd gone through a much more formal review process of the broker. Rather, as, and I think I've said this previously, like I think you just spend as much time evaluating the banker you choose as the exit company, the company you exit to, right? Because that relationship is critical. They're going to make or break uh, your number, your structure, and you have to make sure they're aligned not just around like maximizing the dollars, but maximizing the kind of you know, life you want after you exit. Because otherwise, you can chase the highest dollar value because that puts money in their pocket, but it may not be the best thing for you or what you really want you know, for your future, for your employees. So. It's, I think, a really important relationship, that, that broker relationship. A lot of people want to unlock their ultimate potential, but lack the strategy, support, and stamina necessary to achieve their major goals. They often try to overcome these challenges by trying to do it on their own, causing frustration, fatigue, and eventually failure. We have developed a model for a center life, a.k.a. the red pill, to help them bolster their beliefs, gain clarity on their path to success, and provide accountability as they take action on their goals. When they take the red pill, they rapidly accelerate attainment of their goals and begin to experience a life of significance and impact. Want to find out more? Hop over to JeromeMyers.co. Now, let's get back to the episode. It's interesting that you bring that up because I don't find that most brokers care about anything except maximizing the value of the company because that's what they're incentivized to do based on their compensation. Yeah, Um, I think the model's a little broken. Not not for many companies. If you're a public company and you're doing this, like clearly, right? That's It's all about how many dollars can you get by selling this plant off or something. But if you're a a founder-led organization that has no outside investors and you have a whole broader set of considerations than just the dollar value, you know, and, and the structure of the deal, right? There's a bunch of, you know, what happens on day two questions that I think need to get baked into it. And my perspective is that, or my experience is that that's not really part of the way that the, the brokering or the banking industry works. It's not set up for that. And so where I usually go here is just asking the question, was there anybody who helped you with you? Because 
when you, you sell something that you've been doing for two decades, there, there's a lot of you wrapped up in that thing. So was there anybody helping you with you? Uh, that's it. Yeah. You ask hard questions. Um, was there anyone helping me with me? Well, so there's friends and family, right? So I didn't have a formal coach in that sense. I had a lot of mentors, people in the industry who are more senior to me that I talk to on a regular basis. Again, none of them even on a, they would not consider themselves to be mentoring me, but I looked up to them and considered them to be mentors, if that makes sense. Um, and so conversations like that helped. Um, I did know some entrepreneurs who had exited and talked about the challenges of the transition. Um, so I had some sense that was coming. You know, I had the advantage to win a very strong leadership team. So all four of us were kind of talking through, you know, what our lives were going to be like going forward. So there was, there was, there was lots of people in the mix. There's no one person I can point to who was kind of like coaching or preparing me for the fairly abrupt change in identity that happens when you sell a company. Okay. So we call that the founder's exit paradox. And so you established valuation. Did you just, you guys had a number? Did the broker say, Hey, I might be able to get you this multiple. Like how'd you land on the money? At the end of the day, your company's worth what somebody will pay it for it, right? So I think, you know, valuations are tough, but we knew like in, in the services industry for a financial buyer, there's a range that you're going to get, right? Based on revenue, multiples of EBITDA or multiples of revenue, but they're not huge. This is not a SaaS company where you're you know, able to get, you know, some, some really extreme valuations because it's a strategic value to a buyer. They're buying you for the people that you have, the ability to be in the space that you're in and the ability to generate revenue from those people, right? So there's only, there's a kind of a limit and a range. So we had a sense of what that was. Frankly, we were at least as interested in the structure of the deals we were seeing as the dollar value was. And so we, we walked away from a few deals where the numbers were higher than what we ultimately ended up with, but they would have required more risk on the back end, or we didn't feel the cultural fit was great for our team members. There's one where in the initial meeting, Shannon turned to me and said, this is five minutes, and he says, I, I think they're trying to fire me already and they haven't bought the company yet. Can they actually do that? Is that a thing they can do? It just wasn't going to work out. So all that to say... Valuation is driven by the market. We had a sense of where it would line up. We also knew how much we needed for the company for us to be comfortable. And our alternative to selling the company was just to keep on trucking. And we were perfectly capable of doing that, right? Like our numbers were great. We weren't, because I was able to step away and run the process, Shannon and Allie and Dan were able to run the company. So it was still going really well. There was no distraction factor for them. There's no kind of emotional buy-in from them. They kind of get sometimes as a founder trying to sell the co. So we were able to keep driving both. And if, if we didn't sell it, we were perfectly happy to, you know, wait for the next opportunity and see if we can get to the next level. Yeah. Needing to sell changes the approach to that process. And I think most people miss that part, even though you talked yeah, about windows. In the, but. Yeah. Sometimes when you go through the process too, even if you don't need to sell like financially, you find yourself needing to sell because you put so much effort into this because you're kind of emotionally, now you're in a brain space where this is what you want to do. Right. And that's, that can, be, that can be devastating, especially if you get into a negotiation with a buyer who wants to, they call it retrading, right? Change the valuation after due diligence, right? Because you're yeah. kind of emotionally on the hook. So you don't need to sell, right? The bank's not going to foreclose in your house, but it's that emotional piece is a really critical thing to understand when you're taking your company to market. Yeah. And then when you get deep into the negotiations, especially with retrades, there's this thing we call deal fatigue. Yeah. And you, you're like, man, I just want it over with. Like, ugh. Hey, the roller coaster is too much. Like, can I, can I just get off the ride? Yeah. Yeah. And, and smart, certain kinds of buyers will use that to their advantage. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Is there anything that you would say went really well with your exit? 
Uh, yeah, so uh, a few things were were great. And actually, I can kind of wrap it up into one thing. So there was an awful lot of goodwill between the buyer and the seller. Okay, so it was pretty straightforward, cards on the table. There wasn't a lot of game playing. There was a lot of interest in making this happen in a way that was positive for both sides. And so we hit bumps in the negotiation, and there were some, right? We wanted to delay the deal because it would give us a, a tax advantage through this weird Canadian structure we had. They needed the deal to close by a certain period. We found a way of like, you know, making that work that kept all parties happy. I don't think we could have got there if there wasn't like just really exceptional goodwill on their part. And and this is the interesting thing. Because they're buying a services company, they really want the people to stay and the culture to stay, right? So like they don't they don't have to work with you on day two. And so there's a lot of care and effort put into making sure you don't burn bridges during the negotiation process. And that continues today now that I'm I'm doing that work. So that piece, like that's probably the best thing that happened in the in the negotiation piece itself. And then when I think about the, how the deal turned out, I would, I would argue that the, the most positive thing is the way that our best people were able to rise to their levels of excellence. One of the motivations for selling the company is that we had a lot of people who had long tenure with us, 10, 12, 20 years, and they were better. They had more skills than we could employ in our company, and we couldn't grow fast enough to get them those positions, if that makes sense. So they were going to have to leave if they were going to have the careers that they really deserve. And we were really looking for a place where they could rise within their own careers. And that's worked out. So almost across the board, those that stayed with us post-acquisition have risen to very senior positions within Veltech, which is a 6,000-person global organization. So very pleased about that. That's maybe the, the most rewarding thing that came out of the deal that was hoped for, but not guaranteed by any piece of paper. Was there an indication early on? Because you, it sounds like you talked to multiple potential acquirers. So was there something that happened early on that gave you uh, indication that things would probably go down this path? Yeah, there's a, there's a soft side, right? We talked to the founders, and we had a sense of how Valtech operated. But then there was also the fact, just structurally, they were a European company coming into North America. So they had maybe 100 people in North America, maybe slightly more. We were almost that size. So we knew that their management structure was really light in North America because we'd met them. Um, we thought our team was at least on par with some of the people we'd met. And so we had the sense, we put these two together, there's not going to be much choice about building a blended management team. So immediately we knew that our team was going to have some opportunities they wouldn't have. If we'd been joining a 30,000 person North American firm, they would have been wrapped in and, and be assigned office A621 or whatever A, whereas in this case, they were really being charged with go forth and build this company in, in the Americas, right? And and it's worked. Like my my company in Brazil had 40 people or 50 people when we joined. I think it's a thousand people in Latin America now, five and a half years later. So yeah, and there was an urgent. So like it's been, you know, and and the managing director Fabiano in Brazil is now like one of the two that leads Latin America. So that's what I mean, like rising to the capabilities, right? He was clearly a much better, more talented person than we were going to able be able to give a rewarding career to, and now he's like, you know, he's running this thousand person organization. Was there anything that didn't go so well? Because I want listeners to be able to learn from. The, I would love to tell pain. you it was perfect, but no, lots of pain. We did a four-week due diligence process. It actually slipped about five weeks, but it just about That's killed fair. me. It was tough. It was really difficult. Emotionally, structurally, just, just the number of hours that had to be worked to make that happen. I was keeping a notepad beside my bed, so when I woke up in the middle of the night, I could jot down you know, one more thing that had to happen that was in my brain. So it was a tough month. Just as life has it, that was May 2017. Like Everything was happening that month, right? My, my two kids were going to Europe together to backpack through Ireland. So that was happening in May. I was in a charity boxing match on the second last day of the month. And it's a weird month when the most stressful thing in your life isn't stepping into the ring in front of a thousand people where some guy's going to try and punch you in the head. 
on the way in, I was sending texts around due diligence as I was stepping in into the ring. It was the most ridiculous thing in the world. It was almost an afterthought. So it was a really, really tough month. I will say that. So all things aside, just prepare yourself emotionally, prepare your family, because there's not going to be a lot of space for you in the time you're doing due diligence, particularly when it's compressed. Wow. It was intense. Wow. A couple other things I, I can mention. I wish I'd pushed harder to understand the integration plan on day two. Valtech has become very good at integrating companies now. There's a whole team that does it. When we joined, they were a much smaller company six years ago. And there was a lot of uncertainty about what happened on the day after we had the party, right? Who was doing what? And how is this going to work? And, and I think now I'm very careful to lay that out for any of the companies we're acquiring to make sure they understand, like, here's how we do this. Here's the thresholds. Here's the steps. Here's the process. It's not always perfect, but at least they have a, a, a roadmap mentally for them and their team to understand what we're going to try to accomplish in the first six months. And then there's lots of details. Like, I wish I'd had a better understanding of our working capital going into negotiations. I'd suggest to get your head around that. We should have negotiated our personal job descriptions prior to the acquisition. It all turned out, but it might not have, right? Both those cases, we got lucky. That wasn't, you know, good judgment on our part. So there's things like that. But overall, I would suggest that, you know, be prepared for the due diligence and what that's going to, you know, cost you emotionally. And then think hard about or ask hard questions about what happens on you know, day two through day 365 because the integration is where, where your team members, if you care about them, will either thrive or fail. And, and it's important to understand that. Big. And you know what's come up multiple times during this conversation is how you cared about your employees. And it seems to have been something that carried on from your job at the environmental firm, like treat people well, make sure they're taken care of create opportunities for them and help them excel at what they want to do like that you're thinking not just about you in fact i haven't heard you talk about the check at all so it's just like you know the people the people the people you work with great people you want them to thrive right like we had to do layoffs over the years right things weren't great some of the worst days of my life right letting good people go but you know i think you do if you if you're a founder and it's your firm and you bring people in like you're kind of responsible for a lot of mortgages once you get up to a big payroll right so you have a responsibility mm -hmm. there to them that goes beyond just you know making sure the banks are happy and yeah i, I really wanted to make sure that our team could, could thrive and you know shannon was on board and so were dan and ally so do you get a check or you get a wire i've got a wire we got a wire yeah all right so the money comes in right you're looking at it how'd you feel at that point i was exhausted yeah. I was exhausted. I, I, I barely felt like I could get, yeah, get off my stool. There's a, it, it was, it was a, it was, I was happy. You know, I think we had some champagne, but it was almost like I was dead tired. So I think the joy was more in some of the other folks around and watching that. I was just kind of glad that the, the effort was over, but that's not to say that we didn't party a few days later. Like we had a, you know, we had a pretty good celebration and it was, it was well, it was a joyful moment. Just Pretty, pretty muted in the initial moment because I was dead tired. So more, more relief than anything else. It's like this thing is done, right? Yeah, <laughs> relief. Got it across the finish line. I finished the marathon and we actually yeah. got some something left, right? We're still here. And so was that the largest amount of money you had in your possession ever? Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Like, you know, like most founder-led companies, all my assets were in the company, right? I mean, over the years, you buy stuff in this stock portfolio and stuff. But yeah, it'd be, you know, the pie chart was dominated by, by the private holdings. How'd you celebrate? You talked about parties, but was there a personal celebration or a just straight family celebration? Oh, you know, what can I do? My wife and I went to uh, a Greek island that I've gone back to periodically in my life called Hydra, and uh, we spent a couple of weeks there. That was maybe the biggest, like, sort of 
like one time celebration. It was more of the, and then we certainly had champagne and stuff when the, when the wire cleared, but it's not like I went out and bought a Lamborghini or any of that kind of stuff. That's really not kind of where my heart is. We just spent a bit of time recovering and then got back to work. Okay. And so usually there's this euphoria, this euphoric feeling. You, you Things are different, right? You, you look at the bank account, you're like, I could go buy a Lamborghini. I, I could buy a watch. I could be, you know, all the trophies, right? But then I find that it wears off. Did, did the euphoria wear off for you at some point? Yeah, I probably wasn't being completely honest on this because, yeah, you're right. Certainly, I was happy to have some of the risks out of my life, right? I felt like, finally, I'm in a position where, I mean, finally, I'm in a position where I don't have to worry about the financial security of my family going forward, right? And that's something that's you know, really valuable to be able to say to yourself and really, really meaningful to me. And yeah, I was very excited about that. But yeah, you're right. It's not, it's kind of like money for most founder, like most entrepreneurs, I think, is really a way of counting score as much as, is, you know, the goal in itself, right? So great. I've got, I've got a good score, but like what's next became a really big question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the other thing I, I find is people like they think when they get the money that life is going to be like markedly different <laughs> and right. like the scratch, the itch will be scratched. And it's like, oh yeah. Did it scratch the itch for you? No, I think, and I, I've, I've told this story before. It's like, you know, I did after 10 months or something working at Veltech after the acquisition side, I'm going to go off to this island in the Caribbean and kind of think about what I want to do with my life. You know, it's a great place to go scuba diving. And I was there for a couple of weeks. Started week two, I went for breakfast and realized I was having the Belkin breakfast special, which is like uh, beans, eggs, and a bucket of Belkin beer, right? For $5 US. And I thought, well, if I do this forever, I'm going to be dead soon, right? Like that's not going to work. So that wasn't going to be you know, my future. So yeah, I had to do a reset there and kind of figure out what it was that I really wanted to do. And as I said before, I, I re-engaged uh, at Belltech kind of emotionally and thought, okay, let's, let's see what it's like to be part of a big company because it was the first time it ever happened to me. Yeah, we found most people are chasing the wrong F and it's not, the, I don't think it's their fault, right? The American dream is all about, or I guess I should say the North American dream is all about creating financial freedom. We're programming for decades to chase it. And it isn't until we find it and we realize it's in a mirage, it's an illusion. We probably shouldn't have been chasing that. You, you brought up one of the questions most people come to me asking when they're private clients, what's next or what now? Mm. The other ones I hear is, is this really it? Or what was it all for, <laughs> right? It's, it's so, all those questions you ask in like philosophy 101 or like, you know, having had uh, a long evening over beer in a pub with your college buddies, right? It's like, what's life for? What's the good life, right? Because you've kind of taken care of some of the questions about like, can I win? Can I be successful? You know, is, you know, is, is that all there is? It's a very big set of questions, right? And been asked for a very, very long time. And so what I've found is those folks are usually looking for the other F. They're looking for fulfillment, you know, and they're in this new place where they're struggling with the six centers of doubt that we've identified that people experience when they go through the founder's exit paradox. And, you know, most people haven't heard of the exit paradox, but we, we describe it as the existential crisis that is brought on by a major accomplishment. You know, usually when people have an existential crisis because they lost something. Right. Yeah. But th- you, you start asking those same questions when you exit and you have the check and like for all intents and purposes, you won the lottery, even though it took you 23 years to win the lottery, you won the lottery. Now you're in this new place and you're asking questions about yourself. image, like, who am I now that I've won the game or mm-hmm. the relationships that may be around you? Some people are like, 
what are the people in my life really after, especially the new ones right. that show up after the exit or in work, it's like, what's next? Or were all the sacrifices that I made to get here really worth the health? They're doing things like, did I give away too many years to my business? Or <laughs> can I make adjustments to live a life with fewer health risks? And then my favorite ones are prosperity and significance. Because with prosperity, it's like, I can't afford it. Why should I even question whether or not I get it? Oh, interesting. And why do I question whether or not I can enjoy the money? And then there's other people who are saying, oh, well, you should do this or you should do that or you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that. And you're looking at them like, well, who gave you permission to give me advice about how I use the resources that I earned over the past couple of decades? And then it gets a little bleak, right? Because with the fulfillment seeking, you go to significance and you ask those really tough questions like, mm -hmm. if I die today, who would carry my casket? Or who would I trust to honor my memory after I'm gone? And so I know you said that you saw some people go through these experiences with previous exits. Did you find that you were prepared for it before you, it happened? I was intellectually prepared for it. I wasn't emotionally prepared for it, right? Those are very different things, right? I kind of knew that there would be a crisis of identity afterwards, but that's a very different thing than having a crisis of identity. I was just that again, most founders, especially if it's like not a, a quick flip, if you're not, if you're not doing something in five years, with the purpose of exit, like you, you start you know, you start identifying as uh, the kind of person who leads a company, as an entrepreneur, as as this kind of thing. And then suddenly you're not, right? And that happens literally when a wire transfer that hits your bank account. Uh, so then what are you? You know, what? And that, that's, a, that's a whole inner identity you have to fill. And listen, some people never do. Uh, and I certainly, there are lots of sad stories there of exits that have left people deeply unfulfilled. I, I would love to see a study on divorce rate post-exit because just <laughs> anecdotally, it strikes me they're they're pretty high. That might be because the money is now liquid, but I also think it's just it, it reveals fractures. If there were fractures previously, they could be more dramatic. You know, once once you're not working seventy hours a week, right? Well, so you actually have time to be stuff. together. You, you right? have time to be together, and then you find out whether or not you actually <laughs> like each other. And I mean, it just it becomes a thing. And I mean, one of the questions that w people ask when they're going through the relationship part of the exit paradoxes, does my marriage make sense anymore? Right. Because the, like I'm shifting, I'm shedding all of these old parts of my identity and maybe this needs to go with it as well. It's, you literally have a really chance to reinvent yourself. Right. But without like the kind of limitations you have when you have to make rent when you're 21 and you'll take whatever job you have, like you get a chance to reinvent yourself for better or worse. And that, that can be a very, for good or bad, it's a challenging experience. So you said conceptually or intellectually, you knew that there was going to be something, but emotionally you weren't prepared for that. If you had somebody helping you get ready for that or answering some of the questions that you had to contemplate after the fact, do you think that would have been valuable for you? It might have eased some of the pain of the first couple of years because there is a, uh, because I decided to stay with Veltech and, and I have to compliment them. They give me really interesting work and I help them acquire companies now and it's been a fascinating ride that we've been on. Um, but that doesn't mean it was easy to have a boss for the first time in 23 years, right? Like that's a very strange feeling to not have your, to have your name in the top left-hand corner so the bottom right is a, a peculiar thing. And and look, you know, you, you kick at the traces for a while. It takes, it takes a while to realize that, like, 
you know, it's not up to you to solve the problems. In fact, you're not even allowed to comment on the solutions of the problems, even when things aren't being done the way that you think is clearly, obviously the right way to get things done. There's a lot of pain associated with that and that transition. It's why most companies can't keep founders around or don't want them around, right? Because yeah. both those things happen. You may not want them because they're a pain in the butt. Um, they may not want to be around because they can't stand not being in charge. You need a special culture to do it. And Valtech seems to tolerate us. Uh, so yes, I do think that having somebody work through some of the the reality of what life after the check clears is like would have been helpful. So Randy, you 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 continue on with Valtech after your earnout. So things have to be going well because I don't think you have to work at this point. Yeah. And you're in this role where you're helping bring new companies into the fold. And when I heard you on Built to Sell, you you were talking about how you do the relationship building, but you let people know up front, hey, I'm not making you an offer. I'm just seeing if there's a fit. And so can we talk a little bit about how you've been enjoying building a portfolio of companies, even if it's not into your personal portfolio? I mean, this is what the next step is for most entrepreneurs or founders. You know, we call it exit seven, which is, you know, building a portfolio. And then eventually, if you do it for yourself, you, you exit that portfolio. Yeah, that's interesting. So I'm doing it on behalf of Veltech. I have some private investments too, and I stand some advisory boards for my own uh, stuff. But at Veltech, what I love about it is I have the opportunity to talk to other entrepreneurs on a daily basis, understand their business, see what is alignment. The calls feel a bit like this, right? They're they're often much more just sort of like founder to founder conversations. I think I get to connect with some really interesting people, and I do that with a framework where. You know, Valtech has grown from 2,000 people when they acquired Nonlinear back in 2017 to 6,000 people now. So I'm going to watch this company scale and then understand the kind of challenges the companies face like at that level of transition, which is very different than what I did in my own companies because we never got to the 6,000 person mark, obviously. So that's been kind of an educational opportunity for me. So I really like that. And then I really enjoy the, the interpersonal connection with other entrepreneurs I get through the, the M&A activity that I'm involved in. So it's been, it's been rewarding on both sides. Cause you're right. I don't have to be here. Right. But I, I, I'm enjoying the culture. I like the people I work with and I like the work I do every day. So it's kind of hard to figure out what else I would do that would give me all those things. Yeah. It's interesting because most people might not have caught it because they, they don't get it. But when you go from having your name in the bottom right corner to the top left, we're talking about a check and the person in the top left is the one getting the check. The one in the right is writing the check there for most employees, right? There is this addiction to the paycheck. That's one thing. But then for a founder, there's an addiction to being able to influence or control. Mm -hmm. And you're literally trading one for the other. And that for some people is far too much is what you were mentioning with, you know, people not wanting to keep founders around. And so I, I think that in and of itself is just a, a very poignant point that people need to think about when they're getting into these conversations mm -hmm. about exiting their company and what life looks like on the backside of it. You talked about deal structure and what that looked like and why things made sense and how things made sense. And I'm glad that you are around folks that had already exited to kind of clue you into that being important. And you learned that by basically seeing other people be frustrated or disappointed with how their life turned out post-exit because there's the check and then there's everything else that happens after that. Absolutely, yeah. And 
you know, most people won't ever qualify to be an EO. Like there's some pretty, you got to be running Absolutely. a really big company in order to get into the space. And so I, I, I think for the folks that are out there listening to this and getting some education outside of the formal constructs that that was super valuable as, as we wind this thing up, man, I, I always like to get connected with other people who have had exits. And I feel like people, one person who had an exit knows other people who have had an exit. And so is there anybody that you would recommend that we connect with and be a guest on the Dreamcatchers podcast? Yeah, the two people come to mind. The first one, the little self-serving. I would love to hear what my business partner, Shannon Ryan, has to say when they ask these same questions, but don't let him listen to this first. Let's just find out like how different okay. his view of the world is. So I think that would be amazing. But that's mainly just for my own entertainment. There's a fellow named John Burt who uh, ran the Burt Group in Baltimore. We acquired their firm uh, about a year and a half ago. John's a fascinating guy. And I think you would find that his his life experience has been amazing. His company was very great in addition to building this very cool technology consulting company. He's also like a world-class experimental jazz musician. So guy's got a lot going on. And I can guarantee you'd have an interesting conversation. Outstanding. Well, hopefully you'll connect us with them and we'll get them on the show. Okay. We'll hold this one until we get Shannon interviewed so that we can. That would be uh, hilarious. That would make me really it. happy. Okay. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll get it booked then because we, we've got some opportunities to record here in the short term. Randy, this was awesome, man. Thank you for running the gamut. You, you've allowed us to go through all eight exits and really dig into what founders can expect or experience on this journey. And I think your wisdom from your experience is going to be very valuable to the listeners. So thank you so much for spending the time with me today. Yeah, not at all. It's been a blast. I really enjoyed it. And to my listeners, if you want the sort of help that with your eight-figure exit in a way that would have been helpful, as Randy mentioned on this journey, then jump over to the exitparadox.com to get our white paper on the five mistakes every founder should avoid when exiting. Until the next time, your dreams should be real. We'll talk soon. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real. <laughs>